choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a fucking big television, choose washing machines, cars, compact displays and electrical tin openers, choose good health, low cholesterol and dental insurance, choose fixed interest mortgage repayments, choose your friends, choose a starter home, choose leisure wear and matching luggage, choose rotting away at the end of it all, pissing your last in a miserable home, nothing more than an embarrassment to the selfish, fucked up brats that you've spawned to replace yourselves. Choose your future. Choose life. Welcome to Now Playing's Train Spotting Retrospective Series. Take the best orgasm you ever had. Multiply it by a thousand and you're still nowhere near it. Hosted by Stuart. He knows a lot about Sean Connery. Jacob. The loving man who had a great lust for life. And Arnie. Three of the most useless and unreliable fuck-ups in town. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers, harsh language, and are seriously lacking in moral fiber. What they forget is the pleasure of it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Listener discretion is advised. Here comes Thank you. I'll proceed directly to the intravenous injection of hard drugs, please. Today we're discussing Train Spotting, starring Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremer, Johnny Lee Miller, Kevin McKidd, Robert Carlyle, directed by Danny Boyle. This is the now playing co-host who always has a lust for life, Arnie. This is Stuart. Like heroin, I've got great fucking personality. This is Jacob. Train Spotting, big one of the 90s. Definitely remember it coming out, saw it in theaters opening weekend. How familiar are you guys with this touchstone? This is a lot like Natural Born Killers to me, where I was much more familiar with the soundtrack. I remember that being huge when this film came out. Two volumes. Yeah, and I only saw the film maybe seven, eight years ago. It's been on my list to catch, but it took me a while to get to it. I saw this right when it was brand new on video. This thing had such buzz. I don't know if it came to my town or not, but... It was when I was still in college, so I wasn't hitting theaters that regularly. If it came to town, I was still watching most of my movies on video anyway. But I'd say fall of 96, it hit video shelves. I rented it like the first week it was out because Entertainment Weekly and Variety and all these things were telling me that this Danny Boyle was like a new Tarantino. And instead of doing a big bank robbery for diamonds here were a whole bunch of heroin users and i was really into tarantino if you've listened to that retrospective you guys know i had the mr brown poster on my wall and everything and so i went to see this thinking of it and i had been listening to the soundtrack i liked the music on the soundtrack and i walked away going well that certainly wasn't tarantino and it was okay and never looked back and i know they did a sequel i think the bigger question isn't how familiar are we but why the hell are we talking about train spotting it ties into <laughs> nothing boyle doesn't even have a new film coming out but we're trying something a little bit new and listeners we're kind of going off some feedback we got in the survey but let us know what you think not always can we fit in a movie for its theatrical release we're trying to fit in some movies a two-part series because t2 just came out a few weeks ago on blu-ray T2, I saw that opening weekend when I was like 12. <laughs> I That was one of the big reasons I boycotted Train Spotting 2 is because T2 means one thing and one thing only. And it has Arnold Schwarzenegger and Robert Patrick in it, sir. 
I don't even know how long T2 was out in theater. I remember seeing a poster at the movie theater I go to, but it maybe was there a week. Yeah, you know, that's the state of the art market. In the mid-90s, yeah, to be a little indie that with a hip cast and, yeah, all you needed was a splashy ad campaign and a cool soundtrack and you could get $18 million at the box office. Now, a sequel with well-known Oscar-nominated actors and I think they scraped together a couple million at box office here in the U.S. I think it did quite a bit better in the U.K. because, let's face it, this is a U.K. phenomenon. They didn't make it for us and certainly it's great appeal does remain in England, Scotland, for sure. Starting with the title, I got to say this was all an education. I had no idea what a train spotter was. There's a train in this film. No, I I assumed heroin, right? Like track marks or something. Like I totally went about this wrong. It has nothing to do with heroin. It has everything to do with trains and the fact that in the late 60s and early 70s, a whole bunch of people in the UK thought it was fun to get binoculars and go actually like bird watching different kinds of locomotives and write them down in books and talk about it in clubs and it became synonymous with nerd basically if you did that (laughs) you were a nerd and then the word kind of evolved into anyone that has a whole bunch of useless information stored up in their head and so in some ways i guess i'm a train spotter because i know a whole lot about movies that nobody cares about it's basically a very english way of saying nerd that makes a whole lot more sense because I was wondering maybe Brock should be on this retrospective because there's a whole lot of stuff about Bond we're going to have to discuss. I haven't watched all those films. I don't (laughs) know if the opinions are right. Have you read the book? Because it was, before it was anything else, an underground novel written by Irving Welsh. I'm reviewing it over at Books and Nachos. I have read it in time to compare some things about the movie, which is similar but constructed in a way that feels much more commercial. I only know that this is a book because I knew you were doing a Books and Nachos on it. I had no idea beforehand. (laughs) It's actually three books, and I will be doing all three. This book is the entire basis for this movie. I knew it was a book when it came out. I've never had any interest in reading it. I feel that way a lot about movies. Even if I love the movie, like Fight Club, I haven't had any real interest in going and reading that book, let alone a movie that I felt I was lukewarm on. But when the sequel books came out is when I really, I think it was drawn to attention. The second one's called Porno. And there was a lot of talk. Will they make porno? Will they make a sequel to this? It took them literally 20 years. They really made the sequel as like a 20th anniversary celebration of this original 1996. And I have not read porno as of this recording, nor have I seen the sequel yet. I wouldn't classify myself as the fan. I don't think any of us are saying that we're the big fan. I am part Scottish. So in that way, maybe I am the one that is the the biggest on this. But yeah, when I saw this originally, I liked it. But it was a part of a whole wave of filmmakers. And I just considered it a film by Danny Boyle, who was an up-and-coming director like so many in the 90s. I'm not the fan of train spotting. I kind of think of myself, like, if you just catch me on the street and say, what do you think of Danny Boyle? I'm going to say, oh, I really like him. Because I'm going to think of 28 Days Later, and I'm going to think of him producing 28 Weeks Later. I'm going to think of Sunshine, which I saw for the first time, like, a year and a half ago and really enjoyed. But then when I really look at Danny Boyle's filmography, i got to say I'm not a fan of him either. I like the idea of Danny Boyle much more than I actually like Danny Boyle. I've seen probably two-thirds or more of his films and I usually walk away going yeah it's pretty good so I can't call myself a fan really on any level here yeah I try to do a Danny Boyle deep dive I think back around the time I watched this I'm like oh I I like this movie that was pretty good it it lived up to the hype that I had heard and I of course seen the 28 
days and weeks films at that point. And yeah, I checked out Sunshine, which I really loved until the last 20 minutes where, oof. Yeah, talk about a movie that derailed. It goes weird at the end, but I still enjoyed the overall film. I went back to the film he did before this, Shallow Grave, to see like his indie roots. That's also Ewan McGregor. You know what? I stopped when I got to Slumdog Millionaire. That, I had a violent reaction to that film. That, maybe hate it more than War of the Worlds. Like, that would be a contentious podcast, I feel. But the wow. fact that that won an Oscar, ooh. Not too contentious. I think Slumdog's really overrated. I thought 127 Hours was a little overlong, <laughs> even though the movie was only about 90 minutes. And I still have yet to see his Steve Jobs biopic, though. Yeah. I'm on a quest to watch everything Steve Jobs, and so that's on my list, especially with Aaron Sorkin writing. But, yeah, I mean, the stuff I've seen of his, Millions, I saw that when it was new. I even went to theaters and saw it. It wasn't what I expected it to be. I remember it being okay. And... It's the only one I haven't seen. Of course, at this point, Trainspotting is his second film. He is still relatively new filmmaker he had made commercials and music videos he was about 37 years old when he tackled this but he was basically a second time filmmaker shallow grave have you seen that one because that is sort of what got train spotting rolling no i want to go back and see that one he kind of had the ewan mcgregor trilogy right it was shallow grave train spotting and a life less ordinary and a life less ordinary by the way that one i is like the only one i will vehemently hate on for danny boyle oh it's terrible and it wasn't supposed to be a trilogy but we'll talk about that next week when we talk about the train spotting sequel and why it took so long to get the band back together yeah i read up on that too but yeah a life less ordinary is the only one i can say of his that was a complete complete failure in my mind everything else i'm I just i'm not a fan but if he makes it he makes things i'm usually interested in seeing yeah, Shallow Grave, I had seen it before I saw Trainspotting and felt tricked by it. It is marketed in America as a Hitchcockian thriller. What, in fact, it's about is about Scottish class issues, that there's a three rich people that have an apartment and they are really terrible to everyone that tries to rent it. And then the one person they rent to is a drug dealer who dies in their flat. And then what are they going to do with the money? Uh, it was a big hit in England and it really set the idea in motion that British movies don't have to be boring. That was a radical idea <laughs> in the mid 90s, because up until that point, if you weren't Helena Bonham Carter and Hugh Grant in period attire, you weren't an English film. It defined them. Merchant and Ivory. And I like some of those films but I recognize that many people find them dry, boring, masterpiece theater, not exciting cinema. What Boyle promised was that you could be as edgy and as transgressive as anything happening into America. And so, yeah, when they asked him, what are you doing next? The Trainspotting book had just come out at the end of 93. They had just finished shooting Shallow Grave. They took it to Cannes and they found it very easy to get the two million pounds to make this movie. Still a low budget movie by our standards, but you know, a decent amount of money to tackle this book. One thing I have to ask, I did read up a little bit about this, but did you guys watch this and actually understand it? Stuart, you said you're part Scottish. Are you Scottish enough to understand the dialect here? Because honestly, when I watched this in the 90s, it was on VHS and I just rolled with it. This time, at about the 15 to 20 minute mark, I decided to start the movie over and I turned on the subtitles. And I'm really glad I did because in a couple of cases, the subtitles were translations. Like they'd use certain slang in the dialogue. The subtitles aren't what they said, but actually translating if they're using code words for 
drugs or something. It actually says drugs in the subtitle. So it really helped me to understand the through lines. My subtitles didn't do that, but I did the same thing, Arnie. The first time I watched this years ago, yeah, I just watched it. But now I got to talk about it. I knew what I was going to be up against. I turned those subtitles on. And yeah, there was times I had to stop. Like they kept using this word DOS, D-O-S-S. I'm like, that's not a Microsoft thing. So like I had to look up my English slash Scottish slang for some of this. Well, having just read the book, it did come with a glossary. So some of the slang terms, believe me, when you read that book, it's an effort. I mean, you really have to decode the Scottish brogue that is pervasive through most of the characters speak. I guess I felt like an expert. By the time I popped this into my Blu-ray player, I felt like I knew what they were talking about and had a general sense about storylines that were going on. Worth pointing out, I'll talk about the book over at Books and Nachos, but a lot has been excised to focus on Mark Renton for this movie. They knew that they didn't have the money to make a big epic. It was very popular in the 90s to make those ensemble films, you know, like Robert Altman was always making with shortcuts. 40 people, and they keep running into each other, and it's all about their interactions. That's kind of how the book can be experienced. And so it was really an interesting choice for them to say, let's pare this down to five people, because it didn't have to play that way. But they realized that in order to get this money, they needed to get Danny Boyle, and they needed to get Ewan McGregor, and they needed to be able to complete a 90-minute movie for two million pounds. And so, yeah, the choice was made in the screenwriting stage, and they made it very fast, furious, shot in seven weeks, edited in eight more weeks, and done. Out in theaters by February, at Cannes a couple months later, in American theaters in the summer of 96. And for all of that, coming back to it, all I remembered was somebody, I couldn't even remember which actor, crawled out of a toilet. Oh, come on. There's an even bigger scene to remember than that one. There's some horrifying stuff in this. Coming back to that, you know, having not seen this movie in, yeah, over 20 years, you say train spotting, obviously you think heroin, right? I couldn't remember anything else other than heroin, but the filmmakers say they did not approach this because it was about drugs. They saw this very much, in their words, as an American teen film. Yeah, it's just like American Pie. Yeah, it's got the star of Hackers. Yes, (laughs) we'll be talking about all the stars, but yeah, girls, jobs, parents, having fun. The heroin element just gave it some amount of distinction for the Mark Renton character and the two other people on heroin. But when you read that novel, it isn't necessarily about the evils or the joys of heroin, but certainly it was a political football to kick around in an election year here in America. I do remember a lot of people saying, oh, it glamorizes drugs. This is a bad film or people saying, yeah, it glamorizes drugs. This is a good thing. And, you know, riding the wave of Pulp Fiction, Heroin Chic, the Gap ads, where you're a supermodel if you looked strung out. I know Bob Dole said it justified him. I don't remember anybody else, but Bob Dole was big about this movie. (laughs) Yeah, it does feel weird talking about it now because opiate deaths in the U.S. are just out of control. So I I guess it's come around with the subject of heroin and, and its usage. One of the things that is really amazing because I discovered this movie mostly because of the soundtrack and all of that music felt new to me in 96. Do you guys realize that this is set in the 80s? That this is about 1982 through 1988? I had no clue. You're like blowing my mind right now. I figured that would be the case because it is so hip and techno. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, Stuart, because you read the book. I didn't pick up on it the first time, but watching it now, there's so much stuff about AIDS going on in this film. I'm like, this has got to be in the 80s. It, It seems like it's a new thing. 
Yeah, and all the musical references. I mean, to me, because I discovered alternative music in the early 90s, and those pioneers like Iggy Pop were still relevant and going on Lollapalooza tours in the mid-90s, I thought all of that talk about that was, yeah, we're just talking about now. And of course, you know, obviously the Underworld song and all of that, that felt like this is youth culture now, but it was not intended to be so. It is youth culture as of 1988, and around 1989, BBC TV had the original Traffic. Before it was a Steven Soderbergh movie, it was a British TV movie about heroin coming into England through Pakistan, and there was an epidemic. It was the 80s under Thatcher, and so this would have been the Just Say No era. Obviously, they didn't have Nancy Reagan telling the British people that, but in its own way, the Choose Life message was the Just Say No slogan of the UK. I'm not a big techno person. I just didn't realize that stuff was already going on in the 80s. I associate that with the 90s. And when I think of the Choose Life slogan, all I picture is George Michael with Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. That's what it's a reference to, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is. But yeah, Irving Welsh, the author of this book, was really about writing about his youth. He was 30 years old in 93 when he published Train Spotting, but this movie coming out in 96 felt like it was about 1996. I was really surprised to know that it was about Thatcherism and a drug epidemic that it had happened a decade prior. You guys like drug movies? You know what? I I always struggle with them because I feel like so many of them fall into a pattern where it's like, hey, drugs are great. Oh, I'm strung out. I want to get clean. Uh, Being clean's too hard. Let's get on drugs again. Uh, This sucks. Let's get clean. Like, I guess I go to Sid and Nancy a lot and that's how that entire film feels. Mm -hmm. And I love the Sex Pistols, so the fact that that film just does not work for me, I just associate that with drug films. So a not recommend from you on Sid and Nancy. I'm shocked. I'd have to watch it again. I just remember getting so sick of them getting clean and then getting back on smack. And I hung around some people in college. (laughs) I'll be honest and say I will never inject anything in my veins. I'm not a fan of needles. But the people I was around, not quite so discriminating. And so I've been around people on virtually every drug. And anytime I watch a movie of people on drugs, so many times I find that depiction to be nonsensical and ludicrous and that's not how those people act and you're going over the top and you're not differentiating between the kinds of highs you're supposed to be getting and so while there are some great movies I think that deal with drug use, drug abuse and that sort of thing, I would never seek one out. A big gaping hole in my cinema viewing history. I've never seen Jason Patrick in Rush. a gaping hole. No one saw that movie. It was a big flop. It was supposed to like get him an Oscar. Yeah, well, here's the thing. In this period of time, I do feel like if you go to mainstream, it's Miami Vice, right? It's all about narcs. We like to see people bust drug users. It is not common to have a Breaking Bad scenario where we're behind the drug dealers. The only thing I can really think of that was mainstream was Scarface, and that was its own thing. We'll cover it one day, I'm sure. But mostly it was an indie thing, right? If you wanted to have sympathetic portrayals about users and peddlers and such, you had to go to small movies like Drugstore Cowboy, Sid and Nancy, Naked Lunch, Last Exit to Brooklyn. Those were the films that were going to tackle that. And those movies are big only if you like indie cinema, I suppose. 
And I feel like it, it depends on the drug that they're portraying. Like, the harder the drug, the harder the time I have. When you start getting into heroin and cocaine, you really have to convince me that this person's a protagonist that's worth watching their story. Less than zero. I mean, that's one we covered in our book. That's like a seminal 80s drug movie that encapsulates a lot of what you're talking about, Jacob, about I'm clean, it's too hard to be clean. That was my first introduction to a lot of tropes about drug addiction and drug dealers. I had forgotten about that movie, and you're right, it is in the book, but yeah, not a huge fan of that film, or even the book that it's based on, but that is certainly the American perspective. I think also the challenge here is Scotland, and I don't know how many Scottish movies you have seen, but Braveheart would have been... (laughs) That's about it. (laughs) No, it would have just come out, it would have been at the height of, you know, Scottish pride it's quite a thing to see the next major work coming out of scotland being this film which i don't know is it something to be proud about i guess we should get into it arnie why don't you give him the plot we can get into all the facets of train spotting ewan mcgregor plays mark renton a 20-something heroin addict living in edinburgh scotland he gets high with his friend simon sick boy williamson played by hackers johnny lee miller and Daniel Spud Murphy, played by Ewan Bremer, who we just recently talked about this guy in Wonder Woman. He was the sharpshooter with PTSD. But Renton decides to get clean. When he does, he finds his sex drive is returned, and he hooks up with Diane, played by Kelly McDonald. Only the next morning, it turns out Kelly is a 15-year-old schoolgirl, and she starts to blackmail Renton to keep a relationship going. Renton's non-addict friend Tommy has a bad breakup with his girlfriend, so he asks Renton for some H, and the two both get on the smack. Along with Sick Boy and Spud, the crew commit petty crimes to score their drugs. And while high one day, Sick Boy's infant daughter dies in her crib, which the crew deal with by shooting more drugs. But Renton and Spud get arrested trying to rob a bookstore, and while Spud has to do some time, Renton is remanded to a rehab program. The methadone doesn't work, and Renton shoots up again, only to OD and get taken to the ER. Finally, Renton's parents lock him in his room until he detoxes. Finally clean, Renton moves to London and gets a real estate job, and things are going real well until Renton's old friend, Rageaholic Franco, arrives, played by Robert Carlyle. Franco is on the run from the cops for armed robbery, and, uninvited, crashes at Renton's pad. Then they're joined by Sick Boy, who showed up in London to sell drugs and to be a pimp. Finally, all three must return to Edinburgh when they find out Tommy has died of AIDS due to needle sharing. And a cat. Gotta talk about the cat. Returning for the funeral, they're reunited with Spud, who is out of jail. Sick Boy then gets the four to go on one major drug score. They buy two keys of heroin for 4,000 pounds and turn around and sell it to a major drug dealer for 16,000 pounds. But in the process, to make sure the heroin is pure, Renton shoots up again. Celebrating their profit at a bar, Franco gets in a bar fight, so Renton steals the entire 16,000 pounds. He leaves a couple thousand hidden for Spud and takes the rest of the money and runs, vowing to live a clean life as credits roll. Yeah, and you can make the argument that Train Spotting is an anti-drug movie, has a very strong message of don't use, but I think what scares everybody that wants kids to stay off smack is how inviting it looks at this beginning. Choose life, the montage, it's certainly something that I think about when you say Train Spotting. Running down the street, the Iggy Pop's Lust for Life, I just think that this is a joyous burst of energy and pure Danny Boyle. 
It was the trailer. I watched the trailer to re-familiarize myself with this movie before watching the movie. And I was shocked that when I started the movie, they basically opened with the trailer. Lust for Life, the Choose Life speech, which was very Fight Club in its own way. I kind of felt like when we have Renton going on about electrical tin openers and washing machines that reminded me of the narrator in Fight Club talking about Yeah, Ikea. no, I totally got that Fight Club vibe. This came out before the film. I'm not sure which book was published first, but yeah, you had that overlapping theme going on that really reject the TV, reject the washing machine, choose fighting or I guess heroin in this case instead. But I got to say like this first, I think six minutes before the title comes up, it is exhilarating. It gets your blood pumping with this whole monologue and the chase. And I just love Lust for Life. Great song by Geep Up. I'm not going to lie. It made me wonder if I needed to examine heroin use. <laughs> but you wouldn't be this excited on heroin. That is one of the things that's so deceiving. That's how you know Danny Boyle never used, right? Because yes. this is his idea of excitement. He wanted to bring in that sensibility to English films that so often is attributed to American films. They were riding around on bicycles, getting these kinds of tracking shots. This is just not what you see in a lot of English films. It's a real showcase for youthful energy. I'm not going to follow the rules. It's what we deeply believed. Generation X was certain that we weren't going to fall in the trap of the yuppies and the generation before it. Joke's on us, but the thing that surprised me is we do get this big opening and it does seem like these are some kids having some good times doing some drugs and like I said when I was hanging around those people I was in college it's not like we were living a drama film we weren't living less than zero we were just out having good times hanging out and stuff like this so it was honestly a bit of a shock to me that the instance the start of this film is really Ewan McGregor like I'm off the drugs <laughs> Like, really? I did. Again, I remembered so little about this film, but that it was going to start with him getting clean really threw me for a loop after seeing the fun montage. Why would you want to quit that? Yeah, exactly. And this is the work of John Hodge, the screenwriter. He had a novel that did not necessarily have a shape. And so I think that he chose to see this story about, yeah, a guy that is going to try to kick heroin and realize that he really just needs to kick his friends. Maybe even a more corrosive, destructive force in his life are his mates, who not everyone is on heroin. There's actually only three heroin users out of the five. But let's run them down. We got Mark Renton, Renton Boy. He's the lead character. Ewan McGregor, going to be a big star with or without this movie. He was in like five movies at this time, and in all of them he was showing his penis. I remember that being a big thing at the <laughs> I time. I am still shocked that he got a role in Star Wars after this film. The lightsaber jokes were many. Yeah, and I remember I saw this before he was announced as Obi-Wan. I did go back. The only time I saw A Life Less Ordinary and some of his other works was after he was announced as Obi-Wan. I went back to find out more about this guy. But this I did see beforehand. And I kept trying to figure out which one was he in Train Spotting, Which one is going to be in the movie? Because on my first viewing, again, no subtitles, I felt like the characters kind of were interchangeable. I couldn't keep names straight with them. I probably couldn't understand a lot of the dialogue even being said and so I wasn't able to attribute Ewan McGregor as a specific character when I was looking back. Now you realize all the voiceover is him that he is in fact 
the narrator of this story. It's his story, and certainly all of the subjective camera work, where you see him diving in the toilet and going into a carpet that turns into a grave. I feel like all of that stuff, again, we don't see any of that wild surrealism with anybody else. It's what tells you this is the character to pay attention to. That doesn't exist in the novel. Sometimes you don't even realize that it's Mark Renton talking in the novel. Here, I think we always recognize Ewan McGregor and his Yeah, Mark is definitely the central figure in this movie. There's an ensemble here, which I, I do find it a little weird. Like, in this opening, we're going to be introduced to Sick Boy and Begbie and Spud and Tom. Like, they all get, like, that freeze-frame moment during the football game. And when you say football, you mean soccer. Yes. And I want to point out the soccer team that they're playing against in those scenes, actual recovering heroin addicts who taught them how to cook spoons and do all of that. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) You never get their girlfriends. Like, the girls don't get, like, the freeze frame with the name. Like, you have to find their names out through dialogue. But I guess it's about these five guys. The women do not matter in this film very much. They're to be plot devices or they're to be jokes, but none of them really have arcs the way these characters do. And I would say the five characters we're introduced to, yeah, they all have an arc of a various sorts. The one who I knew most coming into this, I've mentioned Hackers twice now, Johnny Lee Miller. He's now probably best known as being one of the many Sherlocks that have been on one of the many Sherlock shows, but he'll always be zero cool to me. Yeah, he was uh, dating Angelina Jolie at this time, and I think that is actually his claim to fame. They were married. Can you believe he got her? Yeah, for that time, they were both around the same level of stardom, and he was supposed to be a bigger deal than he ended up being. He's the only one in this cast not Scottish. That's a affected accent, and I think he does it pretty well, at least to my American ears. And the point is that he is sort of the ladies' man. He doesn't have trouble with girls. He talks a lot about Sean Connery and sort of patterned himself after that Scottish bond. I see so much of this movie as like the English version of a Kevin Smith film. Kevin Smith's going to focus on the weed. I guess they go a bit harder over in England with the heroin. But yeah, the fact that you are going to get that pop culture dialogue, mainly from Sick Boy, just makes me like him. Like when he's yeah, doing his rants as they're tying up their arms to shoot some heroin. And he's talking about what the best Bond films are. It's also sexual in that moment, too. I mean, if you look at the way that he's looking at that girl as he injects her and how she talks about it, it's like a sexual act. And indeed, you'll find out he's the father of her child later. I actually watched this twice for the review. I didn't realize he was the father till I rewatched that scene. But to me, it was very erotic to see him penetrating her with a needle. I definitely took that as sex. Spud is going to kiss him and he's going to get a little pissed off about that, making me wonder exactly what was going on there. But Johnny Lee Miller keeps up with the Scottish accent to my untrained ear. Maybe when cameras cut, all the real Scots were giving him shit. I don't know. But he does a great Sean Connery. I mean, total problem to this movie right now because in this film sick boy is going to quote the name of the rose is a blip the only good film that sean connery will make (laughs) in a career in decline and the name of the rose is one of the underrated movies i champion in our book so sick boy maybe danny boyle agree with me the name of the rose is underrated and those would be new movies at the time he's talking about sean connery in decline in 1987 when untouchables would have just come out so 
probably important to realize that he hadn't had the Indiana Jones comeback and all of his big movies in the 90s like Hunt for Red October. Same thing when they're knocking on David Bowie. David Bowie helped get music rights for this. He's friends with Iggy Pop, got the Iggy Pop songs here. He knows that he sucked in the 80s and he could have a laugh about it. See, and the way they're talking about the Untouchables in retrospect, saying the Untouchables got him the Oscar nom, makes this feel like a 90s movie, not like he just got nominated for an Oscar this year. Yeah, it's definitely the 80s, but I think that will be a surprise to Americans who know about this culture only from the 90s. And then Spud is the nerd, right? He's the one that can't get the girls. He can get a girl, she's just manipulating him and won't fuck him for like six weeks. Yeah, I mean, he's probably the biggest heroin abuser, for one. He cannot get an erection, and that's certainly going to cause him life problems. But he can't even get a job and doesn't want to, and just seems to be a puppy dog to Mark Renton. If Mark got off heroin, he might get off heroin. He just seems to be the friend that desperately worships and looks up to our main character. I did read after the fact that they went back, they redubbed the first 15 minutes of this with the cast trying to lessen their accents so that American ears could be trained to understand what the hell they were saying. Well, guess what? It's right around that 15, 20 minute mark when Spud is getting that job interview where all I could really understand him saying is, leisure is my pleasure. And I'm like, I need to know some of the jokes that he's saying. I imagine there are some funny lines. And there were about how he lied on his application to get his foot in the door and thought it would show ambition. I think the script is pretty sharp. You might have to have the subtitles on to get all the jokes, but it's a pretty good script. It's funny. And it's worth pointing out, Ewan Brimmer had the role of Mark Renton on stage. Before it was a movie, this book had been adapted to the British stage, and he was the star that was how he got into this cast. They felt a little funny offering him. He's like, yeah, we want you to be in this, but you're not our leading man. We need the much better looking Ewan McGregor, so you're going to be the goofy character. But apparently he was okay with it. It's paid off. He's in one of the biggest films of 2017. Uh, not the biggest part of it, but sure. I mean, this is the movie I always think about, Ewan Bremer. I've seen him in many things, and I've certainly seen Robert Carlyle in a lot of things. Mark Renton has mates that don't use drugs, and Arnie, in theaters, to help American audiences, Begbie's introduction was subtitled. They knew. <laughs> they knew when we get to the pub, and this angry, violent guy is just going off at the mouth about who knows what, that we needed to understand that these were English words, and not a foreign language. What's good about this is because these are some physical actors that are doing big performances, even if you don't understand what's being said, you kind of get what they're trying to say through body language and what they're doing. That he'll throw a beer stein off and pull out his knives and just kind of be a jerk. We get Begbie There's a nihilism to this film and it never comes out more than with Begbie. When he tosses that glass over, and look, maybe I'm sexist. The fact that it lands on a woman and you just get this woman with this bloody face just makes it worse to me than if it hit a guy in the head. Robert Carlyle is a strange choice for this character. You read him in the book and, I mean, you get it. You think of an incredibly violent person would be a big guy. But this is a different take on it. Robert Carlyle is the shortest person in this cast and known for softer fare. I mean, keep in mind, he's the star of Full Monty, priest about gay priests, and once upon a time, he's on that show now as the Mad Hatter. 28 weeks later, he was the father who ends up getting turned. We don't necessarily think of him as the most violent, nihilistic person. Usually, 
really kind of a heroic character here playing against type, but I buy it. I actually feel like it's a Napoleon complex because he feels small and because he is Scottish and because he is surrounded by people that do what he says. He's a bully and so he's just been able to get more and more control and fly more and more off the handle because he has mates to condone all his erratic, angry behavior. It's that mustache. That's how you know he's bad news. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the sunglasses, he really has a look to him. He looks like a soccer hooligan. Yeah, and I forget about the fifth one. I can honestly say I had no memory of Tommy or who Kevin McKidd was. I think part of it is I've never seen that actor since. Apparently I have when I looked at his credits, but I don't know Kevin McKidd by face, and I did not remember Tommy's story, but he's the straight edge. He's the one that hangs out with these guys because he knows them from all the way back in school, but they have no common interests. He wants to hike he wants to exercise they want to get high and he just doesn't let that bother him he just is like okay well i'll be uh bench pressing while you're stoned in the corner which was strange but i think their common interest is homemade pornography someone watches homemade pornography and he wants to make it that's actually i think where the falling out begins and we could probably judge mark Renton pretty harshly as a character for leading to the demise of this character this straight edge will in fact end up developing a habit become the fourth heroin user and be the one to suffer the most from it but in the beginning it's playful right i mean because they use fantasy because they use music yes it is the most gross toilet (laughs) maybe not just in scotland but in the world but diving into that and seeing that it's a beautiful ocean and the opium suppositories or glow-in-the-dark magical. (laughs) I just feel like we're never asked to think about this life as more than designer gross. The peeling wallpaper, all the places that they live. It's like, I actually wouldn't mind living in a place with holes in the wall and floor if it looked that There's something about Ewan McGregor, like, when he is on heroin and then he just springs to life, he just does this weird flip and stands up and he's like, all right, I'm going to clean. Yeah, there's something that makes it all appealing no matter how gross they go. I think this film inspired many indie films in the later 90s and early 2000s because when he's listing out all the items you need in order to get clean, the porno mags, the milk of magnesia, the ice cream the and all of buckets. that. The three buckets. Yeah, I was thinking a little bit of some of Darren Aronofsky's films and I was thinking about just some other movies where they're just giving us this narration, this laundry list in such a rat-a-tat manner. And... I'll give Boyle this. The editing and the filming of this movie, it has such a momentum here in the beginning, as well as such a visual look where they're putting the camera, the way they're filming corners. Again, when Spud is having the interview and he's interviewing at a travel agency, they're filming him with this painted mural behind him as if he's on a beach. I found it to be clever. I feel like the visuals are really strong and that, again, it's seductive. It pulls us into this world and these are young characters. Their abuse of the drug has not taken its toll. They look like the Kate Moss heroin chic models. So what could be wrong with this? For half an hour, these are pranks. This does feel like American Pie. It might get gross, you know, when they go on dates. There might be some splatter (laughs) from uh, (laughs) shitting the bed, quite literally. But I don't feel like it's any different than an American comedy. And the moment Spud shits the bed, any thought of doing heroin kind of goes out the window, doesn't it? (laughs) You could have screwed your girlfriend finally. She was ready. You couldn't get it up. And then you shit the bed. I gotta ask, when they go to that club that night when he's finally gonna get laid, I think he just gets so pissed on alcohol that he can't get it up. They got some weird lettering going on. It reminded me of the milk bars and Clockwork Orange. I didn't know. Maybe it was just the accents was taking me there or that's just a thing in England. 
No, that was intentional, according to IMDb trivia. And the wide-angle lenses. There's so much about this movie and the language. Again, you have the idea of young Scottish men that are... They're not quite criminals. I mean, that is the difficulty here, is that Renton, because of his habit, steals car batteries. He steals from his mom. That doesn't feel like the same thing as Reservoir Dogs and pulling a heist. Or even Scorsese, who's sort of the godfather of all this kind of stuff, in Mean Streets, where those guys really do kill... But yeah, here they just feel like immature guys who are living off the grift. They're taking their welfare checks and they're getting their pennies to shoot up where they can. And I think this is also where, again, you have it reinforced. Begbie can be an asshole, but he gets with the girls. His story is really truncated. It's almost unfortunate. I would have liked to have seen more from the book brought in about Begbie. He's kind of one-dimensional as a thug, but it works for this story. And then Sick Boy, he's getting the girls. Written, you know, it's interesting. Now that he's off heroin in these moments, he has a sex drive again. He's going to actually meet the character that they've expanded greatly. The women really don't matter in the book, but here they have tried to make a composite character, Diane, that is someone that steers him towards a new direction, a life away from his mates. Yeah, I found it very funny that, like you said, Ewan McGregor is the most attractive actor there with the leading man good looks and he walks up to so many women on that dance floor who just denied and he has resilience. He's just going to play the numbers game and just keep hitting on as many as he can until finally somebody succumbs and he sees Diane rebuking somebody else and chugging two drinks and he's like, all right, that's the girl for me. And she is underage. They find that out. You know, she's very confident. She's telling people off. She's making snarky comments as she gets in the cab. We think that he's met his match. I don't know that you would guess that she is a high school No, teenager. I thought she just wanted him to be quiet when she was taking him home because of roommates or something. But yeah, the next morning he sits down and asks her parents if they're Diane's flatmates. And they seem pretty nonchalant about the whole deal. Their teenage daughter like banging older men. Yeah, they know that she goes clubbing and maybe attitudes are different over there in certain households. People are much less worried about their children having sex, I suppose. It wouldn't fly in my house, but hey, whatever. And then, of course, we have the one that I think really is destroyed is Tommy and Lizzie. That Tommy is the one that had that sex tape. And yes, wasn't it hilarious that Renton switched the tape with the best soccer goals? Tommy was already on thin ice because he wanted to go see Iggy Pop on Lizzie's birthday, which I got to agree with you there. But yeah, the fact that he's lost the sex tape, that's a relationship ender. And Renton said, hey, can I take this best goals tape? So Tommy must not have really paid much attention to who borrows what, or else he'd be able to probably realize, hey, if this is the goals tape, then what was in the one that was there? But I don't know that I blame Renton for this breakup. There were a lot of factors that go into this, and sure, but you could blame him for, you know, he doesn't want to. It's an interesting moment. Half hour, things really start to deepen, and suddenly what was puckish and fun starts to feel like, well, you know, that's not so cool that when Tommy comes to him, is like, I want to try heroin now. And you're my friend that does heroin, so sell me heroin. He doesn't want to do it, but we know that he can't resist money. If the guy didn't say, I have the cash, I think he would have said, sorry, man, I'm not going to let you Yeah, get I can see Mark not holding anything against him for stealing the sex tape. Ha ha, prank that went a little bit wrong. But yeah, the fact that he's the one that's going to really get Tommy hooked on heroin. I mean, we're going to get a montage. It's not just a one-time deal. We'll get a little montage here where Tommy keeps up with it. 
Yeah, so when you say there's five friends, but two don't do heroin, yeah, two at the beginning don't. But I feel like Franco really becomes the odd man out in this group once Tommy gets hooked too. I didn't see it becoming quite so tragic for Tommy. I didn't realize he'd be our cautionary tale, but I couldn't remember where this went. I kind of thought it might be Renton who would be our cautionary tale since he is the main character. If he's the one we empathize with the most, something really bad happening to him would impact the audience. Well, even before Tommy becoming the cautionary tale, it's right after he gets hooked on heroin. Besides that toilet scene, this is the thing I remember the most, is Allison screaming. There's been this woman hanging out with Mother Superior who shoots everyone up in this drug den, and she's always had this baby crawling around, and when she's running around screaming, and the fact it's being told from the viewpoint of heroin and addicts, where Mark is like, oh, she could have been screaming for an hour, for days, we have no idea, because we were high. Yeah, and more to the point, he doesn't care about what she's screaming about, which is uh, dead baby Dawn in a crib, that he's just beyond empathy. And that's when you realize, wow, when people can't care about one another, they're really not your friends. And maybe I don't want to hang out with people like this. And it's also where we realize that player boy, sick boy, had a child. And he was kind of keeping that under his hat. His mates didn't yeah, know no that. Yeah, no one knew who the dad was, and it was because of Sick Boy's response, yelling at Mark to, you know, say something. He's the one that gets most upset when Mark can't fix the situation. They realize that Sick Boy is the father. And I don't know from listening to Renton's voiceover if Allison even knew for sure who the father was. Apparently she'd been with many of the guys in there. But yeah, the reaction by Sick Boy and the fact that we're told Sick Boy was never the same again after this. I don't know that I see a huge change. I guess he becomes more ambitious and instead of just being a heroin user, he wants to be a heroin dealer. But I don't see him reforming based on this. And the fact that the baby likely died from what? Starvation? Like they were all so high, the baby just died? That's how I took it. It was just... It got neglected because they were all passed out. Yeah, we've had several scenes in the first half hour. Laughter, fun. It was playing by itself, but it didn't seem to mind. But certainly, either through neglect or who knows, it could have been that through some means it ingested heroin as well. You're right. It's stated that Sick Boy was never the same after that day. I didn't see it in this movie either. It's kind of a shame. There's only one line to indicate the fact that Sick Boy becomes a pimp. But you guys didn't pick up no, on it. No, I, I picked up on it. I'm like, did he become a pimp when he goes and sees Diane later on. So that came through. It's certainly a bigger thing in the book, and I just want to say his name, Sick Boy, he was not a likable character, and he was very sick. He like he would go and kill animals in the street. This is not someone that we admired. When he went to London, they specifically talk about him being a pimp, so that's where I got that from. I didn't realize he did that here. Well, you, there's just more scenes of him starting out trying to do that. Using the tactics he did to coerce women into bed, he would play those mind games now to like, well, why don't you sleep with this guy and I'll collect the money. So what I think gets lost that is a shame from the cut scenes is that there's a little bit more about Sick Boy in scenes that they filmed and scenes that they wanted to film, but they ran out of money and time to film, was the idea that once he realized he could walk away from heroin, it wasn't hard for him to stop. He didn't have the addictive personality the way that the other two that use it do. But once he realized that I'm not going to be a user, he realized that he needed to be a dealer. That There's only two kinds of people in the world. People that use and the people that feed those addictions. And so he thought power was about being yeah, a Yeah, I figured maybe he went clean after that because they called out earlier how easy it was for him to go clean. 
Right. And again, they kind of make it funny that, you know, a dog gets shot in the butt in those scenes. But again, I think this is structured just right. In the book, they're scattered through all out and you don't come to those conclusions easily. You might come to the same conclusions about who these characters are, but not as rapidly. And in some stories, major characters feel like minor characters and vice versa. Here, because they're following a three-act structure, half hour in, what seems like boyish pranks are now starting to look like huge character deficits. And you find out that that whole opening scene, what, this is a flashback? This is what's led up to that? Because we get that running scene again, and now we're going to find out that Mark and Spud are going to get arrested. Yeah, I've read that that actually all happened in editing. That entire speech about Choose Life was supposed to be in the middle of the film, but they didn't have a good opening for it. And so finally in editing, they just moved that to the beginning and it does really launch the film. No, it was in the beginning of the screenplay. What it is, is it comes in the middle of the book. And they realized the best thing they could do if they were making the character of Mark Rinton, the star, was to give his monologue full volume right at the start. So, no, it was always arranged that it was going to be that way. But yes, in the beginning, it just looks like they were running from authorities, you don't realize that the authorities catch them and that they're going to jail. I did wonder why Renton, in the midst of being pursued, he just stops and basically vamps and makes faces at this car he's beating on the hood Because of. it's someone that's middle class, something that he hates. I get it. Like, he's looking at that guy and just wants to mock him at that moment because he's not choosing life. And we see the unfairness of the treatment. Because he's willing to sign on for a rehab program, fine, you don't have to go to jail. Because Begbie is asked first and is stupid, he's going to go to jail. And I think an interesting scene, one that I did not remember, one of the less flashy scenes, but maybe more emotionally impacting, is that Mark's family is going to celebrate at the pub yes. a different kind of chemical abuse. And Spud's mom is going to come in and get Yeah, mocked. that is such a heartbreaking scene. I, oh, I hate Begbie. I do feel like there's... There is some class commentary going on. Again, we don't know a whole lot about Spud, but the fact that Mark is seen interacting with his parents, I feel like he's got more of a family unit. But yeah, when Spud's mom walks in and then Begbie just screams at her and she walks away, that I could see where people can see this as a pro-heroine film, but there's so much ugliness in it too that I could see it the other way. And they kind of let it drop. When Renton is getting clean the first time, he's talking about stealing his mother's Valium and that she's her own socially accepted type of addict. And they don't really follow through on that. We're going to get much more with his parents. But the fact that she has her own addiction and there's a type of hypocrisy here is quickly forgotten in the midst of heroin versus prescription. Yeah, I mean, I think the statement is, it's Mark Renton's attitude. It's not necessarily the filmmaker's attitude that all addictions are the same. That being addicted to the television and being middle class and buying into the hype is as equally valid as someone that chooses not to do that. That's the way that this young character sees it. But obviously, we would live in a very different society if most of the people chose to be of that same opinion. But this is where we are starting to see changes in the characters. Danny Boyle is very specific in saying he did not want a film to be moralistic. He did not want to make a movie in which he was saying drugs are bad. There's enough of those. But he did want to show the visceral quality of all the aspects of life. And certainly, for addicts, it might be easier. You might not have to have all the other problems that other people think about that aren't on heroin but yeah there's some things you just have to face and one of them is going to jail and one of them is potentially getting aids from a needle and poor tommy so fit and loving life in his early scenes now we see that apartment again and it's gone to hell 
The fact that this is a period piece in the 80s makes this hit more because around the time this movie came out, I was seeing HIV is a life sentence, not a death sentence kind of marketing. The new drugs were out. It wasn't quite so bad. Of course, we weren't that far from Philadelphia either where we had one of the most dramatic AIDS deaths ever portrayed on screen. So to me, it seemed fitting still in the 90s that you would see this kind of a reaction. And it seemed very forward thinking even that the parents after Renton finally detoxes in a really cool visual way even with the hysterical animatronic baby crawling at him that the parents would say okay you're sober now you gotta go get tested for AIDS I, I wouldn't have thought that in the 80s as much as the 90s needle sharing wasn't so popular in the 80s it was the gay plague and the heroin abusers. You see a lot more of that in the book itself and people's different attitudes about I HIV. I love these few scenes that you get where you see Mark going through the toughest time. I mean, first, he gets the chance to go to rehab. He needs one more hit because the methadone's not doing it. I love the statement that he gets like three doses of methadone to do per day. He did them all first thing in the morning and now he needs another hit. I know people who have done very similar types of treatments. Yeah, And I want to just call out Danny Boyle, just his direction here and the way he constructs. I mean, Lou Reed's perfect day, ironically playing why you get this point of view from Mark where he's in a grave and you see that carpet like he's six feet under. And then you go to that scene where he's locked in his room and he has all these horrific versions, but just the camera work I mean, never mind the baby crawling towards him with the spinning head but like there's one shot I, i'm not sure how they do it like he's under the covers he's talking to begbie and he sits up and that bed looks double wide because they got to have someone under there and he sits up and there's no one under those covers obviously there's just some great camera work when he's going through this and then when tommy shows up it turns into a horror film yeah all the trains on his wall yeah. too that's like the wall is stretching, getting longer and longer. All the trains are going past him. It's a good montage. I'll say that the aimlessness of the film at this point was starting to grate on me a little bit. I felt like this entire film thus far has been very sketch-based, like little anecdotes and not really having an art. I noticed that they were vignettes. Yeah, you have a lot of, if you want to call them sketches, like what all happens to the guys, you know, on date night, one shits the bed and all that. But I feel like it's all moving towards like telling stories about these characters yeah and i would not recommend you read the book then because what i see is very carefully chosen moments that build up towards an inevitable climax that is not true in this book but here it starts with someone that feels like they want to kick heroin and then realizes he needs to kick out his friends and so a big part of being a junkie is the endless cycle of getting off and getting back on. That's a lot of what we're seeing here. But he's coming closer and closer to the realization that really maybe the problem is not heroin, but Scotland. Maybe he needs to go somewhere else. That he gets that idea once he gets clean. He wins the bingo game, so to speak, by not having AIDS. And now he's got Diane telling him, you need to do something different. It's time to yeah, move on. Yeah, I feel on. like he becomes a yuppie. What, he's a real estate agent or he's fighting flats for people to rent out. He's wearing a suit. He's got money. We'll find out he saved a couple thousand dollars. And realizing that this is in the 80s, becoming the yuppie, that may be the worst thing for a heroin addict. 
you know, but he's lying to himself because he says there was no such thing as society. And even if there was, I had nothing to do with it as he's bringing in all of these up and coming Londoners into these potential middle class flats. I definitely feel like, yeah, you're playing the game, but you like to think you're above it because you're not the yuppies coming into the door. You're just the guy that turns the lock and lets them inside. And yet I view this as a triumph for him. I don't view this as selling out. He's off heroin. He's making money. He's got a savings account. Maybe this speaks more about where I am in my life. But I'm like, yep, this is good. This is a good place. So when Franco shows up and starts to fuck with everything, it's a downfall. But it's almost like its own sequel here. It's almost like we have a new inciting incident to create an entirely new storyline. I like the way that they set it up because he gets the premonition it's coming seconds before it's there. All he knows is the doorbell. But because Diane wrote him and said, oh yeah, I saw your friend on TV. He robbed a jewelry store he puts two and two together and goes oh no and yet he still answers the door and that's when we <laughs> kind of catch up on all these other characters spud i'm guessing is homeless sick boy that's when he's trying to pimp diane out tommy's gone missing and yeah begbie that's when i realized when he shows up at mark's door i'm like oh this isn't about kicking heroin it's the friends that bring you down that you got to kick I think that's the more relatable thing. I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and share this, that I've never really had a substance abuse problem, and God forbid I ever will, but I certainly have known people that have. And yeah, it's difficult when you want to be a support system and removing yourself from a situation and getting clean and moving away from friends that are bad influences. It's an important step that I think every addict reaches at a certain point, that he knows that if he is, in fact, going to stay off heroin, that he's got to stay away from these guys. And it's not just Begbie. Yeah, Begbie is the worst He changes one. the lock on him, right? I thought he was going to squat and like not let him in because Mark returns one day and his key won't open that door. Yeah, exactly. He comes to take more and more advantage of him. And you're right. It's comparable to heroin. I'm like, is this so much worse to be a slave to this? They excise some of this. They go out to a club and that's where you realize music has changed. And there is now that techno influence. I assume we're now in like 88, 89 at this point. I just assumed London was hipper. It is. I mean, this, that kind of music I wouldn't discover for four or five more years, but that is exactly in major metropolitans, New York, Los Angeles, London, you're going to get into those scenes quicker. But yeah, there was a lot more apparently they wanted to do with Begbie and his maybe closeted sexuality. He takes a transvestite out into the car and they wanted to play with that That idea. is the trope in a film is that the transvestite's going to get it for fooling the straight guy and it doesn't go in that direction. I was surprised. They wanted to play with whether this was a straight guy to begin with, but decided, let's not go there. This is Mark Renton's story. And so Begbie, we're just comfortable not thinking about him having multi-dimensions. Let's just keep him being this annoying, awful thing that Mark has got to get rid of. And yet Sick Boy seems even worse. I mean, he then follows the train. Now Renton has two squatters and Sick Boy's going to steal his television and sell it. Yeah, it was fun when they used to do it to the nursing homes, but now it's being done to him. And that's, you're growing up. Yeah, he's realizing material possessions matter to him, too. I mean, I again, he's lying to himself by saying he's not becoming what he hates, but he is. That's part of what being clean is. I'm surprised, honestly, the story didn't go a different way. That, like, he didn't end up calling the cops on his friends, because truthfully, that's what I would do. I would just be like, hey, you know that bank robber you're looking for? He's here along with a drug dealer. Could somebody get them out of my flat? The problem is Begbie's too dangerous. He's going to get out at some point. He's going to come after you. That is the problem. How do you deal with someone that is so violent? 
Yeah, and tragedy brings them back together. Tommy dies. And so this guy gives up his whole London dream and moves back. I couldn't tell if that's what happened. I couldn't tell if he like quit his job and went back to Edinburgh long term or if this was a we're going back for the funeral kind of thing and maybe hopefully leaving Franco and Sick Boy Maybe there. he lost his job after he let Sick Boy and Begbie live in one of the apartments he was supposed to be running out. Yeah, he lost his job. And I want to say a lot about what's happening in this last half hour was made up entirely for this film that you're not going to find it in the book tommy is a different character that dies and the story's kind of similar that he bought a cat to try and win his girlfriend back and it, because he didn't clean up after it it ended up giving him a disease that made him stroke it's such a cute little kitten that they keep cutting to the kitten while discussing how it was the cat feces that killed the guy and i ended up looking it up and this actually is the case toxoplasmosa is a disease from cat feces that is bad if you have any kind of compromise immune system elderly cancer hiv that could kill you so it was kind of a dichotomy there to see the cute murderous kitten but yeah i couldn't tell i knew he had left them the flat i couldn't tell who got in trouble for that when they all go back to edinburgh it did seem like a really strange jump that all of a sudden not only is renton going to go in with the others on a drug deal which they have no reason to put spud in i mean spud is the useless cut of that money he's their friend but he added nothing to that job and Renton he deserved more than 25% because he staked him for two grand yeah but Begbie's involved that's the problem yeah, and don't you see that it's not about what someone's use is. It's not like, oh, you got this skill, I got that skill. We'll be great at crime. It's no, we're mates. We do everything together. We have to do everything together. The only thing that Begbie doesn't do with them is drugs, and that's because he hates it. But, of course, he abuses alcohol, and he's got his own addictions to violence. So, I mean, he certainly can't claim a moral high ground here. But the point is that this guy can't escape his roots. And what his decision is, rightly or wrongly, is that he's got to make a clean break break and why not take advantage of this score what i don't know is the fact that yeah he does come up with half the money to buy it from mickey forrester who's played by the author irving welsh makes a cameo here but he has to try the product and i'm wondering is this a relapse is this the drugs that are getting him to think maybe i should go because in the book this character runs off to amsterdam and i don't think you go to amsterdam to get clean I took it as it was setting up a relapse, like the same way the methadone caused a relapse. I thought one injection was going to get him hooked, and it seems that way, because he does the one in front of them, and he's like, oh, this is good, this is really good. And then he takes a little bit more back to the bathroom and shoots up without telling them. We're near the end of the movie, so it never goes anywhere, so I guess we're going to have to find out with T2 if he was truthful in his end monologue saying, I'm going to be clean, or if this was his way back into drugs, and as part of this heist, he now has a lot more money for drugs. I think the key line is, there's final hits and final hits. And he never knows which one it's going to be. Agreed. And again, because they want to give some kind of ending that I think is to have us still be on Mark's side, that they don't want us to leave behind the main character. All these characters have spotty morality, and I definitely feel like a lot of people may just be judgmental because these are characters that endorse heroin use and are now getting into the game and pushing it on others. But we stay on Mark's side because he is going to at least use this opportunity to screw over Begbie and go on some new kind of direction. 
which may be good or bad. And he wants to take Spud along. This is all contrived for the screenplay, but the idea that he's going to leave a cut for Spud and thinking about Spud and giving Spud the chance to join him, I thought was interesting. Yeah, I think it's a nice atonement for Spud getting screwed with jail time while he just got rehab. I think it's that, and I also think that these guys are friends. You don't want to see anyone screwing over their friends just in general. The fact that he's only screwing over the ones who really screwed him over. The two that came and stole his television and ruined his flat and made him lose his job, apparently. And then, after their big score, stabbed some guy in the neck with glass. You're not going to feel bad that he took the money. And he's even going to try to rationalize it in that end monologue. He's like, we needed to get away from Franco and six boy the only reason he didn't do this to me is he didn't think of it first but spud spud was like their puppy you know I, I, it's funny because i think the dog they shoot in the early one is like a spuds mckenzie dog and then they have this puppy dog friend named spud and so you don't want to see him rip off spud so whether spud actually goes with him he was too slow to really say yeah let's go he just sat there so that he leaves spud i think it's only like two grand it's not spud's full cut they said each stack is two thousand and spud gets one stack so he gives spud a pit that was better than nothing. I mean, Mark did front most of the money, half of it. You know what? I want to call out that tense bar scene moment where they're sitting around. They got that bag of money. Mark has come up with the idea to tell Spud we should run. And then, of course, Begbie screws everything up once again by getting into a fight. And when he calls Mark over to bring him the bag, that, that's just when you know, okay, he's got to get away from these people. This is like the heroin addiction. Like He could run, but he goes back to Begbie and gives him all the money. Yeah, as long as he remains with his mates, he will continue to play the same role. He will continue to fall back in the same behaviors. And again, it's very convenient. I'm not going to say it was the right choice, but it does allow the audience to stay with him that the people he's screwing over are people that we don't like at this point. But in truth, the novel certainly dealt with a darker reality. And I think, yeah, when you're in the throes of addiction, if he is indeed relapsing and going to take all of this money on a big Amsterdam drug-fueled vacation, then he doesn't care who he's screwing over. He doesn't care about babies in cribs. He doesn't care about anything. One other thing I want to point out, this may be a prequel to Shallow Grave. The person that they sold the drugs to, that is the drug dealer that dies in the beginning of Shallow Grave. And so Ewan McGregor ends up, in a weird way, getting fucked over by that. It's well because Ewan McGregor is a major character in Shallow Grave. The only reason why I don't think that he was running off to do a big heroin thing in Amsterdam is there was the line there are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got heroin? And yet as he's running away all he's giving us is all the reasons why he did what he did. No, but he says at the end, these are excuses that I don't buy what I'm telling you right it now. It feels tongue in cheek when he says I'm going to change. I'm choosing life. Yeah, absolutely. He's laughing about that. And what's curious is that we have a sequel that will definitively say, but if this were a standalone experience and I have not seen the movie yet to know, I would take it to mean that this may be a different city, same scenario. See, I am thinking with the sequel, we're going to see him start off in that like middle class, boring life. Maybe he really did change and he's going to get pulled back in. Well, we will find that out next week. But for now, Jacob Stewart... Choose life, choose a job, choose a TV, choose your future, choose recommend or not recommend for train spotting. 
With Jacob. drug films, it always is tricky. Do you want to glamorize the drug trade? Do you want to turn it into a, almost a fairy tale evil? <laughs> you know, thinking of Requiem for a Dream, where like drug addiction is such a monster in that film, it's almost unbelievable. It's like what your parents would tell you to try to keep you off drugs. This, I do find it to be more complicated. Yet yeah, a lot of bad stuff happens because people do heroin, babies die, friends that had a, a pretty good outlook on life end up dying of AIDS. But, you know, people keep going back to it. I think it does accurately show that addictive property of drugs and of especially heroin in this film. Like, it may not be the best thing, but they're getting something out of it. Apparently, it's a thousand times better than any orgasm you could ever have. There's something on the plus side. But I do think it treats it as a more complicated thing. And I like that it really brings it back to about the people you hang out with. It's really not about the drugs. It's about that group of friends you have. And are they letting you be who you want to be and progress in life, drug-free or not? Or are they holding you back and you're stuck in kind of this immaturity because of your friends and you can't stand up to them or you can't escape them? And that's what I really appreciate, especially coming back to it this time with Train Spotting. I, I think this is a very sharp script. It's witty. I like a lot of the art direction, just the way Danny Boyle goes about showing different things. You and McGregor being pulled around by a taxi where it looks like he's in a grave, all those kind of things. Stylish film, funny film, entertaining film. So I choose, yeah, strong recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I think with a lot of movies about drugs or any kind of sordid behavior, you bring your own life and your own experiences to that, personal feelings. When you're young and things don't seem to matter as much and you just love the idea of rebellion, all of this looks cool. And you think you're going to watch this movie and you're going to think this is an amazing uh, statement about youth and sticking the middle finger to society and middle class ideals and saying that the junkie lifestyle is just as valid as any other. And then I think recovering addicts, people I know that have struggled with it, come back and see something like this and they go, yeah, doesn't it show how stupid you are when you're trapped in this cycle of abuse and violence? And I also think that if you're Scottish or English, you might be celebrating the fact that your countrymen have finally made a movie that feels exciting and energetic and doesn't feel like masterpiece theater and that you know Hollywood and Pulp Fiction don't have the monopoly on being transgressive and hip. I'm mostly Tommy. Without the fact that my junkie friends never took me down, I'm mostly the straight-edged guy that is familiar with the scene but never took a part of it. And that's kind of how I feel about this movie, too. I appreciate it. I think it's a really smart script. Having read the book, they did an excellent job of streamlining and creating a narrative where none existed. And so for that, I think it deserves all the merits. I think Danny Boyle deserves a lot for creating an energetic movie and for John Hodge creating a storyline that people can follow with characters that they're going to root for. But how I feel about it is admiration, impressed as a piece of filmmaking, a very clear-eyed assessment about a culture, a time, and a place, and a group of friends as manhood splits them apart. But I, I can't say that it's emotionally satisfying yet. I'm actually looking forward to the sequel more. Much like how I appreciated Before Sunset more than Before Sunrise, I think it's more exciting to have the reunion, right? The real drama is yet to come. This is a story half told. The real story is, after all the time passes, how are you going to reflect on all this? When you're not a dumb kid anymore, hooked on heroin, what does it all mean? I think that one has the potential to be a more impactful film. And so while I like this film, it's a recommend. I'm not over the moon and I'm hopeful next week is the better work. I think if you want a 
anecdotal, high-energy, unintelligible film, this is great. I definitely don't recommend it without subtitles on for American audiences. I had real trouble with the dialect. I'm curious, going back, now that most of these actors have worked in American films with either English accents or American accents, if I'll have the same trouble with the next one. I did have trouble just connecting with the characters in a lot of this. I think beyond Spud just being pathetic and Renton being played by Ewan McGregor as our charismatic lead that narrates everything, the rest, I didn't even care when Tommy died of AIDS. I found myself strangely detached because we didn't spend enough time with Tommy. We didn't see that downfall. We spent so much time with Renton. If Renton had had that kind of downfall really dramatized, I'd have felt it. When Tommy has a downfall, I'm like, oh, that sucks to be Tommy. I mean, yes, there is a little bit of irony that Renton got away with clean needles or didn't get infected anyway, whereas Tommy did with so much less time using, but I just found myself appreciating the film. I think it's really visually good. I like some of the vignettes that we get throughout. Overall, I don't know that it coheres entirely well, but I'm definitely going to give this a solid recommend. I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed its soundtrack. I enjoyed its vibe. It's certainly not my go-to drug film. The one I kept thinking of and wishing I was watching instead was Requiem for a Dream. If you want to see a movie about heroin users that actually act like heroin users and have a downfall that is going to make you run screaming from any needle that has that junk in it, watch Requiem for a Dream. It's a super strong recommend for that movie. Movie, even though it's a rough one to watch. It's a hard, hard movie. This one, I felt like it was its trying to be hipper, younger cousin still wearing Nikes. Yeah, it definitely didn't want to be that movie. It's worth pointing out they succeed whether you want that mission or not. Their mission was to give you the visceral experience of what it is to be seeking the next high without the judgment of whether you should be seeking that high or not. They did not want people to leave the theater saying, I don't want to use drugs. Well, we'll find out what the characters left with when we return next week for Train Spotting 2, or T2, as it's unfortunately decided <laughs> to call itself. T2 Train Spotting, to be technical, but yes, <laughs> uh, it probably is still more marketable than. Are you sure? <laughs> well. It may not be more marketable than actual pornography, but <laughs> I think that it's hard to get into mainstream theaters when your movie's called porno. And we will be covering that next week. Yes, Dunkirk comes out this weekend. This weekend is also San Diego Comic-Con, so we will be covering Dunkirk one week late. And if you're going to be at San Diego Comic-Con, Saturday night, Marjorie, Justin, I, and a couple others are going to be hanging out at the Naughty Barrel on Market Street. So if you're in the area, feel free to stop by. We'll be there probably after 7 or 8, until 10 or so at least. And during the convention, this Friday, we're going to be bringing our patrons a bonus show in the middle, Galaxy Quest. San Diego Comic-Con is the biggest convention on the planet, but what happens if you're a Questarian and want to go to a Galaxy Quest Con? That's how that movie kicks off. If you haven't seen it, you should take a listen to see if we recommend it. Brock is joining us because Galaxy Quest is a bit of a Star Trek spoof, so it's Brock, Stewart, and I. We'll never give up. We'll never surrender. We'll review Galaxy Quest this Friday. And Jacob, Stewart, thank you for joining me. I'll talk to you next week because I need just one more podcast. I need one more fucking podcast. I chose not to choose life. I chose something else. And the reasons? 
There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got heroin? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Train Spotting Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I haven't felt that good since Archie Gamble scored against Holland in 1978. For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. There you'll find podcast film reviews including Blue Velvet, Memento, The Shining, The Marvel Comics Movies, and more. It's a recording. A keepsake so the memory need never fade. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Goldfinger's better than Dr. No. Both of them are a lot better than Diamonds of Forever. Thunderball was a notable success. The streets are awash with drugs you can have for unhappiness and pain, and we took them all. But the good times couldn't last forever. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. 10% of your salary per annum. Paid monthly on a rolling indefinite basis. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. Available there are reviews of all the Quentin Tarantino films, including Kill Bill, Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, Jackie Brown, and Pulp Fiction. Plus, reviews of Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later and its sequel, 28 Weeks Later with podcasts on the Alien films, Planet of the Apes, War of the Worlds, Poltergeist, and more. Find them all at Now Playing's Podbean page and in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. But let's be clear about this. There's final hits and final hits. What kind was this to be? You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Hook, Monster Trucks, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Ah, hard currency. It'll do nicely. You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and a thousand other ways to spew your bile across people you never met. Choose updating your profile. Tell the world what you had for breakfast and hope that someone somewhere cares. Choose looking up old flames, desperate to believe that you don't look as bad as they do. Choose live blogging from your first wank to your last breath. Human interaction reduced to nothing more than data. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. All I am trying to do, Mark, is to help you understand that The Name of the Rose is merely a blip on an otherwise uninterrupted downward trajectory. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on the train spotting films. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, can you not stay a bit longer? It'd be nice to see you get to spend some time together. Missed you, man. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, actually. Yes, I am. See, for me, it's got to be the best, or there's nothing at all. 
Now Playing's Train Spotting series is produced by Arnie Carvalho. My pleasure. Other people's pleasure. Now Playing's Train Spotting retrospective series is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. You stop looking at your fucking watch! Now Playing's Train Spotting series credit narration by Brock. He told you to say that. Yes. The train spotting films, all audio clips and music used are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known train spotting films. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of this film series. What's that even mean? doesn't mean anything. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Why'd you lie to me? Because I didn't want to tell you the truth. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I think it would be better if we brought this meeting to a close and you and I get together once you've had time to reflect upon the situation. Today we're discussing... No, I'm not even going to try a Scottish accent no, in case you were hoping. I'm so disappointed after your Maine accent. <laughs> and your... I can do a Maine accent. Whoa. I can't do Lucky Charms. <laughs> it's fun to see you try. They're all going to come after me, heroin. Mm. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Donnie Boyle. Today we'd be discussing train spalting. Mm. That's the best I can do. Okay. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> Give me more. Do the Leprechaun movies count? That's Irish and no. That's Irish. <laughs> Damn it. Scottish or kilts, Irish or Leprechaun. Scottish or haggis and bagpipes, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Mike Myers, Scottish. Bagpipes are actually both cultures. That's where it gets confusing. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather watch Skyrish, Scottish than Irish. I'll leave it at that. You want to watch Skyrish? Skyrish. There we go. <laughs>